This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight's show is a part of an ongoing series on food and body image, and my guest is Tony Herbine Blank. Tony is a therapist. She's also a lead trainer in Internal Family Systems, a school of therapy practiced around the country, and she herself lives in Colorado. Welcome to Safe Space, Tony. So I want to start out by asking you, um, how did you first become aware that you had your own internal struggle around food and body image? You know, Anne, when you um, invited me to participate um, in this, it was um, an invitation for me to revisit that period in my life. So I've had some time to think about that. And you know, I don't exactly know when when I started being aware of the struggle, but I I was thinking about some of my very early memories, my first memories in adolescence, when I paid started paying a lot of attention when I got dressed in the morning to uh, covering myself up, dressing in a way that would hide my body, wouldn't show my body, so. Those are my earliest memories of paying attention to what I looked like and that certain part of, parts of my body didn't show or that I didn't look fat, I, that I started having a conversation with myself about that fat was bad. Yes. So probably early adolescence. Although it's interesting because when I hear you say that, it seems so universal. It's hard to imagine growing up as a girl in our culture mm-hmm. without really being so aware of that. Yeah, and I think I, I, you know, I was thinking about that also, that that by that time in my life, I was aware of the messages from our culture, very strong messages about what beautiful, you know, beauty, beauty is good, thin right. equals beauty, so right. if you're thin and you're beautiful, you're good. So I think I did have that, I did have that cognition by that time. Yeah, I, I imagine that. I mean, of course, I don't remember when it starts, but it seems like it starts very early. Mm-hmm. And then I know that you, you know, you later went on to work with teenagers with eating disorders or difficulty with food. And tell me how that impacted you and your own awareness about yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was working with those young women that um, invited me into the, my own exploration about what I was doing to and saying to to myself about my body uh, and I, I was working one of my internships was in an eating disorder unit in Philadelphia Pennsylvania and as I started working with those women and those girls and listening to their stories listening to not only how they felt about their bodies uh, more importantly how they felt about themselves and then also what they did, what their relationship to food was, I started making some connections for myself that although I didn't have, um, it wasn't as extreme for me, I certainly could relate to uh, many of the uh, dilemmas around food and also the games. The games that these women, these girls played, or, or uh, 
you know, some of the mental um, struggles that they went that that they had around food and their eating. Tell me, and, tell me an example. Like, what do you mean when you say a game? Uh, Maybe one that you either had yourself or one that you saw them having. Yeah. Well, one one thing that I that uh, I did myself was around exercise and food. So I there was a quota that I needed to <laughs> fill. Of exercise every day um, in order to eat dinner, for huh. instance. So if I felt like I had burned off a certain number of calories through exercise during the day, then I had more or less permission to eat at night. <clears throat> so that was one of the things. And, you know, I was a workout junkie, as many people are, and that's, a, that's one of those um, behaviors that's very well accepted in our society now, especially so nobody noticed that, that I over-exercised in order to have, give myself permission to eat. So that was one of them. Um, Got it. So, and if you didn't for any reason, just say you couldn't exercise that day, what would be the consequence for you at supper time? I would restrict what I ate. So I might not, you know, I might not eat as much. I might not eat at all. I just would skip a meal. And if, you, and if you didn't eat at all, did your parents notice and it was comment? Well, you know, this actually started, you know, at a time in my adolescence when my parents weren't paying as much attention to me. You know, they're, they're, you know, I was in high school and, you know, there were lots of reasons to go to a friend's house to study or just not, you know, or just not make a meal, <clears throat> you know, not make a meal. And it got progressively, it got for me, it progressed as I got older, actually, as opposed to the other way around. So I was much more independent. I see. And, you know, at the time where I was, I was starting to, you know, um, some of the other things that I found myself doing is I would start to eat food and then I would spit it out, and that was another thing that that um, that these kids talked about is how they would look. They would appear that they were eating, but then they would spit out the food. So they would get the taste. Mm-hmm. I and guess then the, spit it out. Yeah, so it was the idea that you sort of get the pleasure of it, but then you yeah. don't have to worry about getting fat. You don't have to fat. worry about the calories or the intake. I also used laxatives. I never vomited. I never um, made myself throw up, which is why I never sort of classified myself as someone with bulimia or with a sub, what we would call a subclinical bulimia, not something that would land me in a hospital or even have anybody pay attention to me about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of invisible in a way, mm-hmm. but it, it sounds like it was no less powerful inside you in terms of your own experience. Yeah, well, it's a it was a constant struggle that I wasn't conscious of until I started listening to the stories of other women. Isn't that it's something about that that's so powerful? So on the one hand, there's this constant struggle going on, and on the other hand, you're really not even conscious of it, you're not even sort of acknowledging to yourself that it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Or that it's a problem. Definitely that it's happening, but not that it's a problem. I see. So it's sort of like, you know, it was the air you were breathing. It was so the stuff of your regular life that it... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that's true for many. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it is. I think it's an epidemic so, in the Western world, actually. Yeah, so here you are. You have this struggle going on. You're aware of it, but it's sort of not named as a problem. And then what what happened next? How how did it how did you start to realize like I don't really want this anymore or how do I start to begin to shift this? Mm-hmm. Well, the other gift 
of working with these women is uh, that what I discovered <laughs> um, is that fat is not a feeling. And so many, so, so many times I heard myself, and so many times I have heard women all throughout my lifetime say, I feel fat, I feel fat, I feel fat. And as I investigated that further, I thought, well, that's true. Fat really isn't a feeling, and this isn't something that I came up with on my own. There's been lots of writing about that in, with people that work with, with women with eating disorders, that there is a feeling going on. Um, and we've labeled it fat. We've taken our body and we've decided that our body is the problem for the bad feelings, when actually the bad feelings are generated from something much deeper. And I got started to get curious at that point in time uh, about that. What might that be? That What is that feeling? If it's not fat, what is that feeling? And uh, it wasn't until really much later... Um, even after I had, I had stopped the behaviors because I decided the behaviors were harmful for me, that I began to investigate what was underneath, what was underneath that I feel fat, what was underneath that issue. And when I started uh, training in internal family systems theory, which is a parts model, I started to get into relationship with those parts of me inside that were struggling around food. So I started listening to myself in a much different way. So I think that's, that's when I started to, to sort of unwind it in a much, um, in a bigger way. So just to stay with that, because I, I hear that all the time too, I feel fat. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you don't mind sharing, what did you discover? So when you when you started listening in a, to what you were actually feeling behind that fat feeling, that non-fat mm -hmm. feeling, mm -hmm. what did you discover? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that I discovered uh, was that there, were, there was more than one part of me in, in the discussion around my weight and my body image and what I felt like. That was the first thing, is that there was more than just one idea that there was an eating disorder but that or there was a, a problem but that I had a part of me or several parts of me that were very committed to um, being thin and fit and uh, I, I don't even want to say healthy because I don't think that really was the agenda internally it was more about being fit and thin and I called those those parts my fit girls okay and then, but there was a polarization. There was a struggle inside because there were the parts of me that wanted to eat whatever they wanted to eat, um, didn't want to have to follow any rules, and, um, you know, didn't care, didn't really care about being fit. So those, those parts I called the fat girls. Uh -huh. So I had uh, an internal war between the fit girls and the fat girls, and they really they hated each other quite a bit. So there was always the, the struggle to um, maintain a certain weight, maintain a certain level of fitness, eat a certain amount of calories, get rid of food that, that were unwanted calories. On the one hand, which you know, felt very rigid and um, you know, kept me sort of vigilant and alert all the time. 
And those parts of me ran the show probably, you know, 75% of the time. But at some point there would be, you know, a, a backlash to, I don't want to be in this rigid, um, I don't want to be in this rigid, um, controlled place mm-hmm. around eating and food in my body. And so this whole other set of parts in me would take over and um, sort of break down that whole system of, of restricting and would overeat or not care and then there would be a backlash swinging in the other direction so that was the first thing that I became aware of is um, that struggle and then as I listened more deeply do you want me to keep going keep going I'm, I'm, I'm in rapt attention okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I listened more Really, what what all of that struggle around being fit and not fat and the calories was about my self-worth. That should should I get fat? Should I not be fit? Should I not not fit into some uh, cultural definition of what is good and beautiful? Then I would start to feel really bad about myself. And that is what the feelings were underneath of all of this was some place deep inside of me that didn't feel worthwhile and that this entire struggle and this entire war between these two sides two parts of myself or two aspects of myself was all about self-worth and not feeling not feeling good about myself feeling that there was something wrong with me or something or i wasn't lovable in some way and the whole struggle around food became the thing that got focused on in my life, instead of of those more, much more difficult feelings. I see. So food sort of became the arena where the struggle played itself out, right. but yeah, the so actual the food, and also, also, I could target what I didn't like about my body. I could use my body as the target for that I didn't like myself. You know, he, because my body didn't fit. It didn't fit the criteria, so obviously it had to have been about that inside my inside my adolescent mind. I see. It was sort of like a one-to-one correspondence. If, right. Uh-huh. Because yeah. what you said at the very beginning was about, you know, you'd already gotten the messages as a young girl that th- beautiful equals thin and thin equals good. Mm-hmm. And so there was something about g- your own goodness that was at stake here, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And And I think it's very hard to get to, and um, for young women today, you know, for for me and also for my eating disorder clients or my clients that were struggling, because of the cultural pressure, it's really hard to go down another layer to say, what is this really about? This really couldn't be about my body. When you have a whole culture that's saying, well, yeah, it really is. Absolutely. A whole culture that has a very narrow definition. And so if someone's a little bit heavier than it, it is. it seems obvious mm-hmm. that once they get their body back into that mold that is acceptable, then those whole feelings of not being good enough would disappear. Right. That's the fantasy. That's the fantasy. Yeah. yeah and it's very seductive. Mm-hmm. Profoundly seductive, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Um, if you don't mind taking it even a step further, so you get to this realization, which sounds so right and so powerful, that really what's at stake is this feeling about your own worth and your own goodness. Mm-hmm. But So then where did you go? I mean, how did that begin to soften or to lift? 
Um, by paying attention to the parts of myself that, that didn't feel good, that doubted my self-worth, that held on to uh, messages that I received from childhood about not being good enough, you know, um, you know, young, very young parts of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, in IFS, we talk about the child parts, the parts of us that um, take the hits, <laughs> as it were, when we're young. You know, no, no child, no child escapes childhood. You know, and childhood is tough. And uh, so I started paying attention to that. I started to pay attention. You know, it wasn't the first time I had ever paid attention to that. But I think, I think what what made the difference for me was a deeper relationship with the wounded children in me, as, as it were. You know, the parts, the, the places inside where I, I doubted my self-worth, my lovability. And then when you describe sort of paying attention to them or having a deeper relationship with these young parts inside, did it feel like they were then able to get that those messages were never true about them to begin with? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Is it that was those were uh, those mess that those were messages that weren't accurate? Uh huh. So about, you then about who I was as a human being. So that kind of going back now as an adult, that could became very clear mm-hmm. that that was false. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh huh. That's a wonderful story to hear. I'm glad for you. Mm, thank you. Um, you know, I'm I'm struck at uh, something you said earlier about how, uh, you know, I wasn't hating myself. I sort of, the the body became the target for that feeling of not good enough. And I'm struck because one of the things that can be so confusing for people about eating disorders is that this person who is patently, you know, dangerously thin can have this very distorted sense of their body that it's terribly heavy. and, um, And so people get this very distorted sense of their own body, what it really looks like. And I wondered, you know, how how do you understand that? Is it is it because the self-criticism, the sense of worthlessness is never really about the body anyway? And so that's why it has no kind of bearing in reality to what the body actually looks like? Mm-hmm. Well, there are two things that I that I that, that alerted me to that in myself, but also in these young women that I was working with is that there was an there there feeling fat um, or thinking that they looked fat, by me observing them, I could see this is not based in reality. There's no reality here. These these young women are beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. And uh, um, I remember an experience once I was in a gym, and uh, there was a group of adolescent girls who came in from a gym class or something like that. And one by one, each one of them got on the scale. And this was actually a turning point for me because they, they, these young girls, these girls, they were adolescent girls, one more beautiful than the next, and all different shapes and sizes of their bodies. And as they got on the scale, depending on how, what the weight was, uh, what their weight was, sort of, um, that's the word I'm looking for, they, their, 
they had a change in mood. Their mood changed depending on what the what the scale said. The power of that number. Yes, and it was so heartbreaking to watch because there were these beautiful, beautiful children, some a little bit heavier than others, um, some round, some thin, some developing, you know, breasts and hips, some not, all beautiful. And I sat there and I watched, and I watched myself as I was watching these girls. I was watching myself as well and thinking, this isn't based on reality. This number is not based on anything real. And that bodies are beautiful, big, small, wide, narrow. You know, women's bodies are beautiful, and girls' bodies are beautiful. And somehow this begins to get enculturated somehow. If I don't like myself, I can pin it on my body and my weight. Because the other experience that I've had, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, is being around girls or women who have a healthy sense of self-esteem, and they may be rounder, they may be heavier, and they don't do this to themselves. So those were two experiences that I had, that there, were, that there were women that I knew and girls that I knew that were round in their bodies, and they didn't hate themselves, and they didn't hate their bodies. Yes, yeah, so you saw that. Yes. So, you know, and again, you know, again, this isn't just my own particular theory, or I haven't come up with this my, on, on my own, but, but if we feel good about ourselves, you know, if we have a healthy sense of who I am in the world and I have been invited um, into loving myself as a child, I don't have to go after myself in the same way. And, I don't, you know, I don't have to find something wrong with this, this part of me that shows, you know, my body. Right. Well, even ironically, I think when a person feels good about themselves, they are more beautiful, mm-hmm. regardless of their shape. Because mm-hmm. that that sense of valuing is sort of radiant in a certain way. Right. And that people will respond to us based on how we feel about ourselves on the inside. Yes. You know, as opposed to how we look on the outside. It's so hard to trust that, I think, in our culture because the media images are so pervasive and so powerful. I, I want to switch gears um, because I know we don't have a whole lot more time and there's more I want to ask you, which is um, you said something really intriguing a few minutes ago. You said, well, you know, by the time I really started to do my own work with IFS, internal family systems, on these parts of myself, I had already stopped the behaviors because mm-hmm. I realized they were harmful. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a pretty powerful statement because for some people it's not so cut, it's not so easy. And I was curious, what enabled you to do that without having done this kind of inner work, to just stop doing it? Well, number one, I, I, I had been doing, um, I had been in therapy or was in therapy, and I wasn't specifically focusing on those issues. I was focusing on how, you know, my, how I felt about myself, my, um, I wasn't, I didn't go into therapy with the expressed desire to work on that issue. And part of the reason, Anne, is because I was never either too thin or too fat. So it was never, I never realized that it was such 
it was such an issue that ran my life until I started working with these women. So I had already started to pay attention mm-hmm. to how I felt about myself. And then, um, then when I started working with these women with eating disorders and paying attention to the fact that I was doing some of the same behaviors, I wasn't even aware, really aware of it. So much hard as that is to believe, I think it, I had just sort of started to incorporate some of the some of the behaviors um, without consciousness, over exercising, restricting. You know, I, I I didn't realize consciously that that's what I was doing. And yeah. as I was listening and watching to the, these women, I I was paying attention to I my own behavior and saying, you know, I don't know if this is such a good idea. You know, yeah. I don't know if this is such a good idea for me to be doing this to myself, restricting my eating, restricting my eating depending on how much exercise. And then also I fell in love with my now husband. Uh-huh. I remember, I remember saying to myself, this would not be good to bring into a relationship. These behaviors would not be good. So I use my mind. And, and you are saying something really important that not everybody can do that. And if this is a very, very, you know, if it's, a, if it's a more serious issue, it's much harder to just say, I am going to stop this because this does not feel, this does not feel healthy. You know, that some people can do that. And sometimes those parts that have taken on the behaviors um, are way too afraid to let go of the behaviors because of what they're protecting. So... You know, and when you I say that, to do that to a certain extent. When you say because of what they're protecting, tell me more what you mean. Well, you know, um, in in IFS therapy, you know, we say that that extreme behaviors, often extreme behaviors like this, like eating, overeating, or restricting, or thrashing oneself um, because of being too fat, or you know, not being able to fit into a certain size clothes is protecting something more vulnerable inside which you know which I talked about a little bit before in my own my own right. history this um, fear of not being good enough just to be explicit yeah, yeah and right if that thing that's being protected is quite severe like someone suffered a trauma when they were young physical or emotional those behaviors um, those parts that carry those behaviors won't stop so easily yeah. Before that's attended to. So I, w- I have one time for one last question, okay. and I want to ask you something really different, but uh, which is I want to bring this to the present, Tony. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've talked in referring to these girls that you worked with, I noticed you referring to them alternately as women and girls, mm-hmm. and which captures, I think, the fact that they are going through puberty at the mm-hmm. time that eating disorders so often really show up. And, and I want to talk now about menopause and mm-hmm. kind of the other side of that yeah. transition and, mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, how it is for you now, kind of on the other side of that and um, what you found about weight and body um, mm-hmm. in that transition. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting that you should ask, <laughs> uh, because I am right in the middle of that process. And I am noticing that as my body, my hormones shift, my body is also shifting. And um, I was talking to my sister the other day, who's a little bit ahead of me in this process and who's also a psychotherapist. 
And uh, I was saying, you know, it's so interesting because as I'm noticing my body is shifting and changing, one of the things that's happening is I'm gaining weight. And, or my, <laughs> my weight is redistributing itself, yes. as, you know, many women over 50 uh, know. And I said, you know, I'm really, I'm starting to have some of those same feelings of fear and shame that I did as an adolescent around weight, my weight, body weight. And the difference for me right now is that I have a little bit of distance from it. I'm observing it. Uh, and I also have a relationship with those parts of myself, those fit girls and those fat girls who mm-hmm. kind of, who are stirring a little bit inside. You know, they kind of want to get into a battle with, the, with each other inside. And uh, my sister said to me that um, actually she had read, you know, are you familiar with Christine Northrup? Yes. She's yeah, so from she Maine. Said, <laughs> she, well, she, there's a whole chapter in one of her books on, on women and menopause on this very thing, that the hormonal changes are very, in, in, during menopause are very, very similar to those that are going on in adolescence. So, of course, we would begin to have some of those same feelings and same fears and concerns. Uh, and it's a, it's a very similar process of hormonal shift. So I thought that was fascinating. Yes, I know know you're not alone in feeling that way. Tony, thank you so much. If someone wanted to contact you or learn more about your work, how could they find you? Do you have a website? Uh, I have a website, Anne. uh, What's the address? It's Tony at TonyHerbineBlank.com. Tony, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. I want to thank Jen Hodgson tonight for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Neil McKenty for consulting. If you'd like to email me or give a suggestion or a question about a future show, please do so at drann at safespaceradio.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.